Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Carissa Bugle and her husband Wes uh, arrived at the hospital for the birth of their baby boy, Declan. Uh, Chris and Wes already had a daughter, Mallory, and were excited to welcome a son. However, during the delivery, complications arose that caused Carissa and Wes to face a life or death decision. While she was in labor, doctors discovered that Carissa had amniotic, uh, an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a rare condition in which the amniotic fluid uh, enters the mother's bloodstream. Declan's heart rate began to drop. Uh, the, the lives of both the mother and the son were at risk as this condition causes the organs to, to very quickly shut down in both the mother and, and the, the baby. Uh, Carissa was forced to make a, a decision between one of two procedures, one that would ensure that she lived, but it would endanger the life of Declan, or the other uh, would put her at great risk but ensure that Declan lived. She chose to put Declan's life first. After Declan was born and whisked away to be treated for the amniotic fluid in his system, Carissa asked her husband, Wes, about him, what he looked like, how much he weighed, and then moments later, Carissa died. Uh, here's a, a picture of Carissa and, uh, and Declan. And Declan um, went on to be, you know, become a very healthy uh, little baby. Uh, no matter what we might think about Carissa's decision, one thing is undeniable. Declan will grow up knowing his mother loved him so much that she died so that he could live. These situations where, where a decision has to be made whether or to save the mother or the child are extremely rare in, in our day, not nearly as common as they once were back in the days when problem pregnancies were far more common, but they still do occur on rare occasions. The most common scenario of this type in our day is when a mother is facing an illness like cancer. And she discovers she's pregnant, and the cancer treatment actually poses mortal danger to the unborn child. Though it's difficult for many people in our day to believe, many mothers choose to reject the cancer treatment, risking their own lives in order to ensure their baby's survival. Women such as Gianna Mola, who, pregnant with her fourth child, told her doctor and her family, quote, if you must decide between me and the life of the child, choose the child. Do not hesitate. I insist on it. Save the baby. Gianna also died as a result of her sacrificing, self-sacrificing decision. Several months ago, I was in a group conversation with uh, some people who were discussing the controversial topic of abortion, and I made the assertion that, that not long ago, this was a far more common thing. Back in the days when problem pregnancies were not as rare as they are today, it, it was quite common for the mothers to say, if you have to choose between me or the baby, save the baby. And I was met with with actually some, some ridicule for, for even making that assertion. Several people in that discussion just could not believe there was a time when it was fairly normal for a woman to choose to give their life for a child who wasn't even born yet. 
Why would a mother make that choice? In fact, why would anyone give their life in order to save someone else? We call it making the ultimate sacrifice, and we, and we honor such people, don't we? We, we recognize the heroism in them, and, and we lavish honor upon them, and we even see something of the divine in them, perhaps a reflection of our Creator who Himself became a human and gave His life so that we might live. Incidentally, my, my own great-grandmother, my, my mom's grandma, died giving birth to my grandpa. Uh, though in that situation, I don't know if she was given a choice. But the fact that this seems so foreign and strange to this generation reveals just how far we have drifted in our values and in our beliefs and convictions on this topic. Now, this raises a lot of questions. What about the life of the mother? Why is the life of the mother apparently less valuable than the life of an unborn baby? What if the woman didn't want to be a mother and wasn't planning on being a mother or, or isn't prepared to be a mother and raise a child? What if having a child would be an unbearable burden for her? And, and can you even consider an unborn fetus an actual child? These and many other questions make this a topic that is virtually impossible to cover in 30 minutes. And, and, I, and I won't be able to answer every question or objection that could be raised, but I'll do my best to address the foundational truths that are, at, that are at the core of this issue. We're now 10 weeks, 10 weeks into a series called Human, where we are looking at the all-important question of what it means to be a human being. Obviously, the culture we live in has embraced the idea that the answer to the question, what does it mean to be a human, is a purely subjective question. They, they are, are purely suggest, uh, uh, subject, it's very subjective how you want to answer that question. The prevailing belief is that everyone should just decide for themselves what it means to be a human being, and no one has the right to define that for anyone else. And throughout this series, we've discussed why that is such a disastrous and, and actually completely irrational and illogical idea. One of my very good friends likes to post things on Facebook, often just to, often just to pr provoke people. And he, and he readily confesses that sometimes he doesn't even agree with the things he posts, but he just likes to post things just to kind of needle people. And he posted something a while back that said something like this, what I, believe is what I believe is entirely my responsibility, what you believe is entirely none of my business, which, which is a very popular idea today. I think he's just sometimes teeing it up for people to propound on their opinions. Um, I took the bait on this occasion, and I responded. I said, if we were both stranded on a desert island, and I believed in cannibalism, you might think differently, <laughs> right? That, that my beliefs are none of your business. Not difficult to see. Uh, and very few people would argue with that. We all recognize that at least in certain contexts, that other people's beliefs, morals, values, behaviors impact everyone else. We recognize it immediately in some contexts, but we seem to be completely blind to it in other contexts. A classic recent example is this idea of my body, my choice. The, the inference is that you should have the freedom to decide for yourself whether a particular thing is right or wrong for you. 
So in the context of abortion, well, these people over here say that clearly this is not an area where you should have the freedom to decide for yourself. And these people over here say you should absolutely have the freedom to, to, to decide for yourself. But if the context of my body, my choice, is whether or not you should be required to let someone inject a vaccine into you, well, then the, then the whole, both sides completely flip-flop. Now, now, I'm not suggesting there's moral equivalency in that example. I don't believe there is. You may have a strong opinion, you know, one way or another about why there's not a moral equivalence there. I'm just using that example to demonstrate this, that we all seem to be able to agree that there are certain contexts where we are not free simply to do whatever we think is right. It's obviously sharp disagreement over what those contexts are, but we are all forced to acknowledge, like it or not, that those contexts clearly exist. There are situations where you are not free simply to do whatever you think is right for you. And the fact is, there's actually a lot of agreement on many of those situations. A lot of people seem to want to embrace the idea that freedom is just the ability to do whatever you want to do without any consequence. In reality, we all readily acknowledge there are certain things we are not free to do, and many of those things we agree on. Just for example, we're not free to dump our garbage on somebody else's property, right? Pretty much everybody agrees on that. We're not free just to take somebody else's car or bike or, you know, anything that belongs to another person, even if we might personally feel that for some reason we're entitled to it. We're not free to kidnap someone and hold them hostage against their will, even if we really, really, really want to. <laughs> even if we don't plan on harming them. Even if we're convinced that we'd be doing them a favor by kidnapping them. And there, I think there's been several creepy movies put out that's with that premise. We're not free to murder someone, even though sometimes we really want to, you know? And we all recognize that there are a lot of things we're just not free to do. The idea that freedom is being able to do whatever you want to do and decide for yourself what is moral or immoral, right or wrong, it's, it's a distorted, perverted idea of freedom. Being human will always require a degree of restraint and self-control, which is often difficult and objectionable, but necessary for our flourishing as human beings. And, and as we discussed last week and throughout this series, being human will always involve yielding to a higher moral authority, one that is above our own personal preferences and opinions. One of the most controversial issues in the world today is this issue of whether or not we are free to terminate the life of a human being before it is born, particularly if the mother's knife, life is not at risk, which statistically is the overwhelming majority of the cases. The mother's life is not at risk. A, a, a minuscule percentage, very less than 1% of the over 63 million abortions that have taken place in the U.S. alone over the past 50 years fall into that category. Uh, you know, a very, uh, a very minuscule percentage were medically necessary. Now, as I said last week, uh, when I told you at the end of the service we'd be talking about this today, let me, let me just say again, whether you have had an abortion or are considering having an abortion or would never consider having an abortion, you are welcome here. You are loved here. You are valued here. I'm so glad you're here. There's no condemnation here. Statistically, there's likely a handful of people here 
to, uh, today or listening to me online who have had an abortion. Some of you have been an important part of our church for, for family for many, many years, and, and you know and have experienced God's amazing love and grace and mercy. But why is this so controversial? Why is this such a big deal? Let me do my best to explain why. This will likely make much more sense to you if, if you uh, have been following along in this series, Human. And, and paying attention. Uh, and I encourage you still to go back and listen to the other messages in this series as it, as it really speaks into what we're talking about today. I'll go back and listen to those if you haven't heard them yet. But here's why it's such a big deal. Human beings are very, very special, more than the vast majority of us understand or realize. Every human being is a unique and very special expression of God's love and creative goodness. We are not, as most people suppose, merely highly evolved animals. We human beings, among all the other creatures on this planet, we alone have been made in God's image and likeness in the Imago Dei, which means that we are unique and immeasurably valuable. Every one of us a unique and an, an eternal expression of God's infinite love. Now, his image and likeness in each one of us has been marred. It's been defaced and, and, and corrupted by sin. So we don't reflect God's love, goodness, and glory the way we should, the way God intended for us to. But God has not given up on us. His intention from the moment sin entered the world was to rescue us from sin, to redeem us, and to restore us into his image and likeness. That is why he, God himself, became one of us. The infinite God stepped into our finite three-dimensional realm, became flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. God became a human being and entered into our dysfunction and our disease and our disorder to bring healing and life to our death and decay and order to our chaos. So God's intention for every single one of us humans is to be an expression of his love, his creative goodness, and his glory. There's not a single human being that God says, no, I really don't have any plans or purposes for that one. Yeah, it's not unique. Or, yeah, that one is not unique or special. You can just toss that aside. There's no one that God says that about. We see God's loving intention for human beings all through Scripture. First, you know, in the very beginning, God declares in Genesis, he says, let us make men and women in our image and likeness. And, and we talked about this at depth in the, in the beginning of our series. And all through the Bible, conception and pregnancy, the, the womb carrying a child, all through the Bible, that is associated with God's richest and highest blessing, cause for great celebration and joy, evidence, it's proof of God's love and goodness, a, 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 a pregnancy, proof of God's blessing. Psalm 139 describes how even from your mother's womb, before you were even born, God was thoughtfully and lovingly planning out who you would be and what you would do. Let's look at that verse. He says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. 
How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I cannot even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. The Apostle Paul talks about how God intends for each one of us to be an expression of God's loving, creative genius. Paul says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In advance, meaning, you know, long before you were even born, he created you to do good things, to reflect his goodness, which means that your life has purpose. It has meaning. It is a unique expression of God, of something of God's nature. You have significance. Now, has God's wonderful intentions played out in, in every person? No, not by a long shot, not even close. See, he's given us free will, and we have used our free will in very destructive ways. But that is not at all altered or nullified what God intended for us from the beginning, his plans and purposes for us. God's not done with any one of us yet. In fact, Jesus once told a crowd of people, the same crowd of people who would one day curse him and shout, crucify him. He once told that group of people, knowing that they would one day reject him in that way, he once told them, you matter so much that your heavenly father has the very hairs of your head numbered. Your life matters. And the lives of everyone around you matter. Because we were all created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God, even though that image has not yet fully been realized in any of us yet. The, the, the key thing for you to understand is that you are not an animal. You are far, far more valuable, far more important and significant, far more precious than any animal. That should be good news to everyone, to all of us. Sometimes people try to make the argument, but not everybody turns out to be a good person. Some people become extremely evil and cruel and just, just, just horrible people. I mean, how do you know that the person you're carrying in your womb doesn't become, how do you know they're not going to become one of those people? But there's so many things that are just upside down about that way of thinking. I mean, it's, it's, number one is a faulty premise for many reasons. The, the, the fact is, first of all, we've all already become evil all of us you know god's glorious image in all of us has been horribly marred jesus told us as much he says there's no one that is good except for god and yet he loves us desperately anyway and is exceedingly patient with us as he calls us back to himself and performs his work of redemption and restoration in us. But let's explore that idea. In fact, somebody brought this up just last week. They raised the common question that often gets asked as a hypothetical on this issue. What if you could go back in time and abort Adolf Hitler or, or kill Adolf Hitler? It, it, it would seem like just cause, right? It would seem like a, a, a moral and compassionate thing to do. But like the verse I quoted last week, there is a way that seems right, but it ain't right. Um, here's the deal. The question, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, you know, would you or should you? It's not difficult. It's the wrong question. And a question like that only reveals our depravity. 
See, see God, God doesn't think that way. Um, why isn't the question, if you could go back in time and show extraordinary kindness and love to Hitler and teach him noble truths and set him on the right path, would you? I mean, why isn't that the question? Since we're entering the realm of science fiction and, you know, talking about time travel, wouldn't that be a better use of your imagination? Why wouldn't that be more in line with God's nature in his way of thinking and in his intention for us human beings? See, in God's mind, life is always a gift and always holds possibility for something amazing and glorious. He is the author of life, which leads us to the crux of the matter. If all this is true, if God's intention for every human being is to be a unique and glorious expression of his love and creative goodness, then without question, the greatest privilege you could be given, the greatest treasure you could ever hope to be entrusted with, the greatest honor and delight you could ever hope to experience as a human being would be to raise a child, right? to be given the privilege of pouring love and wisdom into a young human being, to teach them about how they are, are, are a unique expression of God's love, how, how their lives have incredible purpose and meaning. That's what God has had in mind from the beginning. If all this is true, then clearly that would be the greatest, highest, most wonderfully glorious purpose a human being could ever aspire to in this world more than a successful career, more than amassing great wealth, more than fame or glory, more than anything else. Now, is everyone given the joy and privilege of parenthood? No, clearly not. Most people are, but some are not. Some are given other gifts and privileges instead. Many notable Jesus followers were not given this privilege, including the Apostle Paul, who wrote about half the New Testament, uh, uh, but, but Paul wasn't resentful about that. He, he just recognized and embraced the fact that God gave him other gifts and privileges, and he rejoiced over those other gifts and privileges while, while placing a high, high value on the gift, the privilege, and responsibility of parenthood. And I should point out that just because you're not a parent doesn't mean you can't also pour into other people's lives God's love and grace and, and put, point them to God. Now, here's what should be obvious to everybody. This privilege is, for the overwhelming majority of us, one that we can either decide we want to embark on or not. This is a privilege that you, by nature, have almost complete and total control over the overwhelming majority of the time. Because, because how do you become a parent? This is not a trick question. It, 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 it's a question we all know the answer to, but a lot of people are strangely in denial about and, and didn't want to face up to and want to kind of ignore and, and want to suppress the truth about. Listen, very, very, very few people are forced to get pregnant. I'll address the question, what about them, in, in a minute. But, but very, very few people are forced to get pregnant. Listen, we have all been created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God, which means that we, like Him, we have volition. We have, you know, free will. We can make choices. We have consciousness. We can imagine the future and make choices about the future, knowing and understanding that our choices have outcomes. We can reflect on all these things. 
being made in the image and likeness of God also means that we can create. God is creative, and he has made human beings so that we can also create. And without question, the most glorious thing that we can create is life. And the creation of life is the most glorious result of the decision to enter into a beautiful act involving an intimate exchange intended by God to be expressed and experienced between two people who love each other and are fully committed to each other. God is such a great genius. I mean, he clearly did this intentionally. He gave us this amazing and wonderful ability, and with it, very specific rules and guidelines regarding this incredible gift and ability. In a nutshell, this is for another message, but in a nutshell, here's God's rules and guidelines for this. In order, uh, his, his order and design. If, you're, if you are not in a loving, committed relationship, if you're not married, you are not free to engage in sex. If you're, if you're not ready to be a parent, if you're not married don't have sex if we just all if we all just follow that simple rule problem solved right but having free will means we also have the ability to reject god's order his intentions design his rules and guidelines and do whatever we want but to our own detriment you see see we have we've have taken something that god meant to be life-giving glorious and beautiful the act of marriage and we have taken the intended glorious outcome of a new life being created a new and unique expression of god's love and creative goodness and we have completely turned it upside down rather than being an expression of love and commitment sex has become the ultimate act of sex, uh, of self-gratification and lustful indulgence no commitment no context of trust and fidelity, no valuing a person for who they actually are, but only for how you can use them for your own pleasure. And instead of the resulting creation of a new human life being seen as a unique expression of God's love and creative goodness and an occasion of great joy, wonder, celebration, and honor and privilege as God intended from the beginning, we have turned it into a despised consequence a blight, a problem, a detested thing, something to be disposed of and discarded. You see how we, we have completely inverted the value of human life from what God intended. Such distortion and perversion of God's most precious and powerful gifts and privileges carry with it catastrophic consequences for humanity. Consequences that we progressively try to hide ourselves from but cannot do so forever. You know, if we could really wrap our hearts and mind around these enormous truths of God's glorious intention and design for humanity, we will find the other questions and controversies surrounding this issue are, are really irrelevant. For example, let's talk about what about rape? Those rare occasions when someone is force, forcibly impregnated. Well, if God intends for every human life to become a unique and special expression of his love and creative goodness, then perhaps the resulting pregnancy could very well be God's way of taking what was a horrific, evil, and vile act, the ultimate perversion of his gift of sex, and bringing something beautiful and glorious out of it. 
Was the act of rape an, an expression of God's love and creative goodness? Of course not. Only an evil and depraved mind would, would, would suggest such a thing. But what God is an expert at is taking horrifically evil events and bringing something amazing, wonderful, and beautiful out of them if we will let, the, if we will let him. If we will give those things to him. Listen, if God can take a horrifically unjust, cruel, evil crucifixion and turn it into something that results in the redemption of all mankind, then he can take any evil event and bring good out of it. There are a lot of wonderful people who are alive today and are reflecting something of God's love and creative goodness who were conceived in just such circumstances. People who are grateful to be alive, whose mothers are grateful that they are alive, who, who many other people in the world are, are very glad that they were born. Valerie Gatto, Miss Pennsylvania, 2014. Her mother was just 19 years old when she was raped at, nine point, at knife point. When Valerie uh, was in the third grade, her mother told her, uh, something bad happened to me. A very bad man hurt me, but God gave me you. Today, Valerie Gatto is, is an advocate for sexual assault awareness, traveling the country, talking to women about how to protect themselves against sexual uh, uh, violence and the sexual aggression. And in an interview on the Today Show, Valerie, who was conceived in rape, Valerie said, I believe God put me here for a reason, to inspire people, to encourage them, to give them hope that everything is possible and you can't let your circumstances define your life. But what about a woman who gets pregnant and is living in poverty and literally cannot afford to raise a child. First of all, as we've already talked about, if you're not prepared to have a child, don't have sex. That's God's order. That's God's command to us all. Second of all, there are so many resources available for women in, in just such circumstances. One that we mention every single su Sunday is Network Medical, which provides all kinds of resources, financial resources, medical resources, mat uh, material uh, resources, clothing, you know, lodging, counseling for women in just such situations, all free of charge, all provided by loving people just like yourselves. Third of all, there are a lot of people who want to adopt and are willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars in expenses and fees in order to do so. Why adoption costs that much, I will never understand. But fourth of all, let's not forget that you have a powerful, loving, compassionate Heavenly Father who has the very hairs of your hairs, head numbered and, and as well as your child's hairs numbered that is able to do exceedingly beyond all you can think, ask, or imagine when you invite him into your situation. Here's where we cannot afford to go intellectually or morally. We cannot decide, and hear me closely here, we cannot decide that it is somehow compassionate to end the life of a child because that child might be a burden on the mother. And let me tell you why. See, that's, that's not compassion. Again, it's upside-down thinking. That's completely inverting God's value, values. A human life is always 
a gift. Even when hardship is involved, which hardship is always involved, especially when it comes to parenting. And if you are a parent, you know. Hardship is always involved in this. Count on it. We've talked about in this series about how God allows hardship into our lives and uses it to do His glorious work in us and to make us more like Him. God allows us to experience hardship in part as a way of helping us to discover what's really valuable in life and what's not. And as I said earlier, there is no greater when, when at the end of the day, when, you really, when your eyes are really open, you realize there is no greater gift, no greater treasure, no greater privilege than being a parent. It may take a realigning of what you think is important and what you think is valuable and what you think will make you happy, but that's the process that God has all of us in. A realigning of our values and a rethinking about what's really important in life. If we say that ending the life of a child because the child may be a burden to the mother, if we say that's a compassionate thing to do, then why couldn't this exact same argument be made for ending the life of a one-year-old, or a two-year-old, or a five-year-old, right? It, it used to be that abortion was not permitted after the sixth week, week of pregnancy, and then it was 12 weeks, and then it was 22 weeks, and now in many states, abortion is permitted all the way up to birth, and in some states, technically, for several weeks after birth. Using the exact same moral argument that raising a child would be a hardship for the mo mother, there's literally, not, literally nothing to prohibit ending the life of a child or of anyone else that is deemed a hardship to someone else, someone with a disability, or perhaps the elderly, or someone who is deemed a drain on society for some reason, or someone you disagree with. That person's a hardship on me. I don't think he sh they should live. Think about it. That is literally true. Using the argument, that argument, there'd be nothing to prohibit ending the life of anyone who might be a hardship on someone else, except what is culturally acceptable, which is moral, re moral relativity and very much a moving target, opening the door wide open for atrocities like Nazi Germany. The verses we looked at a moment ago declare that from the moment of conception, human life has value. We seem to easily recognize this when it comes to other species. What is the fine for tampering with an eagle's egg or a condor's egg or the eggs of certain species of turtles or other animals? See, we readily recognize that these eggs, in fact, represent a valued creature which is why you pay a hefty fine and spend time in prison if you interfere in any way with their development. Make that connection. Now, unlike certain animals, humans aren't valuable because there's not enough of them. They are valuable because they are human. Each one a unique and special expression of God's love and creative goodness. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but Jim, we're facing overpopulation. There's already too many humans. There's not enough resources to go around. Actually, that's not true. That, that is a fallacy. In 2018, the Nobel Peace Prize, Peace Prize was awarded to economist Paul Romer for providing compelling proof that people are the solution to, not the cause of, 
poverty and many of the other world's ills. Given the opportunity to be creative, Paul Romer proved that human beings have the ability to take Earth's finite resources and rearrange and restructure them in a way that benefits everyone. Poverty and disease are not the result of too many human beings on the planet. It's the result of political corruption, and more than that, the result of humanity's rejection of God. God's intention for human beings from the very beginning to this present day is that every human life would be a gift, a treasure, a totally unique and wonderful expression of his love and creative goodness. We have completely messed it up. But God's intention has never changed, nor have his rules and guidelines regarding how to protect and value his precious and wonderful gifts. The more powerful the gift, the more carefully we must guard it, and the more destructive it becomes if we fail to do so. I want to close by hearing the story of Amanda and Cheyenne. Let me direct your attention to the screen. <laughs> 